Dreyfus Podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, helpful descriptions of common legal and business issues in the community, and entertaining discussion. If listeners are interested in a certain topic or have questions, feel free to get in touch with us by emailing us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com or by visiting our website, realestatebreakfast.com. We should also mention that the podcast is produced by SATC Solution Center, L3C, which is the Education and Development Division of the law firm Shankanis Tepper Campbell, LTD, which is where I am an attorney and principal with that firm. I'm very excited about our guest today. It is David Stone of Stone Real Estate Corporation. Stone Real Estate Corporation has been in the Chicago market for 20 years. This is their 20th year anniversary, and if you haven't noticed their signs on a variety of buildings here in downtown Chicago, you're going to start to notice it because the signs are everywhere, and so is Stone Real Estate. David is a extremely knowledgeable, very humble, very smart and gracious uh, guest, and he did an excellent interview. He started Stone Real Estate Corporation, as I mentioned, 20 years ago. He's the Vice President and Director of Retail Leasing at M&J Wilco, LTD, and um, he was that in that position for eight years before starting Stone Real Estate, and he got his start in real estate at CBRE's downtown office, focusing on urban retail. David was appointed by the City of Chicago Department of planning to the Retail Advisory Committee for the Mayor's Task Force on State Street and the Mayor's Task Force on Wabash. And by task force, David talks about a little bit, he uh, helped the City of Chicago get a plan for how to uh, revitalize those areas. He also serves in the Greater North Michigan Avenue Association Sign and Urban Design Committee. And he's one of the most well-respected brokers in the Chicago real estate industry. And he was even named the a retail Broker of the Year um, from the Chicago Commercial Real Estate Awards and is also a finalist for Retail Broker of the Year for Chicago Commercial Real Estate Awards. So he is, um, been, is extremely well-respected, very well-known in the Chicagoland area. I urge you to go to his website and to uh, just Google Stone Real Estate Corporation and you'll see the types of projects that they work on, such as the Merchandise Mart, which uh, David gets into in the interview, as well as Northwestern Memorial Hospital, 1225 North Wells, Block 37, and uh, many other projects. So he's done notable transactions, such as Howells and Hood at the Tribune Tower, Latinicity in Block 37, the AMC Theaters, Block 37, uh, are responsible uh, because of Stone Real Estate Corporation. So I want you to sit back, enjoy. This information is going to come at you fast and furious. You're going to hear about all sorts of areas of the Chicago market and uh, his, some of his predictions for the future. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm here with David Stone of Stone Real Estate. And I wanted to have David in because he was recently quoted in the Chicago Tribune or mentioned by the Chicago Tribune for his work in connection with the South 
uh, area of North Michigan Avenue. And it was, it was related to the new Apple announcement and Apple coming in. And I, I know David can't talk about that transaction specifically, but David, tell us about that area of town and what you're seeing uh, either prior to or since that announcement. Well, the Apple deal going to 401 North Michigan is a big deal in the retail world and it's a big deal in the Michigan Avenue world because historically the south part of North Michigan Avenue, really south of Ohio, has been considered uh, the dead part or a, a dead part or certainly more service oriented than retail. But Apple's uh, announcement has caused a tremendous stir among landlords, brokers, other tenants because there's a huge anticipation of tourist traffic now coming to see that store when it opens to have their picture taken in front of it, similar to the Cube uh, in New York City where people, right. it, it's a tourist, it's a legitimate tourist attraction. So people are anticipating that that's going to happen here too. And as a result, landlords on all sides of that project, including south of the river, um, have raised their asking rents fairly dramatically and are, and are very, very bullish on what's going to happen once Apple uh, opens. Yeah. No one knows exactly what's going to happen, but the anticipation is good. Right, so Apple is good good for business all around the area. It is, and so you know, once it opens, assuming that it does in fact become a Chicago tourist attraction, it's gonna make a difference in, in rents and in, in the flow of, of retailers from North Michigan Avenue south of the river. You know, as you mentioned that, I was just thinking there's been a lot of investments by the city of Chicago in that riverfront area. Do you think that that help is helping with the increased demand for rents? And do you think it you know, maybe helps solicit Apple? Or do you think that the beautification of that area of the city is helping to revitalize it? That's a good question. I think it is. Uh, the city did a really a fantastic job at the, at the riverfront. It's very, very successful. It's very hard to, you know, on a nice summer afternoon after work, it's hard to, the lines are, are hard to get a drink at if you're gonna go get a beer after work. So it's highly successful. It, it actually much more successful than I thought it was going to be. Um, so was that an, an, a factor for Apple? Probably a small factor. It, it gave some vitality to the area where it didn't exist before. So I really commend the city. I think they did a, a first class job with that and, and are now obviously continuing to expand it along the river. It probably also helps that there's been a few new hotels around there, the development of the Lakeshore East really taking off in the past 10 years. You have a lot of residents as well as a lot of tourism that's more central to that area than, uh, than just the North Michigan Avenue area. Yeah, I mean, the hotels are a factor. Uh, Lakeshore East is a factor, but the, the real game changer was Millennium Park. And when that finally got built, open, and mm -hmm. active, that has changed the entire dynamic of, of the pedestrian traffic south of the Chicago River because it is it is such an attraction, and we office right at Michigan and Lake, and we've seen we've always officed in Michigan and Lake. So over the last 15 to 20 years, we have seen a tr tremendous increase in traffic, particularly tourists along that area, as a result of Millennium Park. Right when I first moved to Chicago, I started law school in 2004, and I lived downtown. I remember being dead downtown on the weekends, but now you can't go into to downtown on that North Michigan Avenue, or I guess I don't know if you call it North Michigan. Technically, everything north of Madison is North Michigan right. Avenue, but yeah, right. right in that area, that used to be very quiet, and now it's just packed full of people at every, every hour of every day of the week. Yeah, our, I mean, our core business is leasing at, on the ground floor of office buildings in the loop, and 
for much of my career, it's been a five-day week, maybe six-day, you know, depending on if you're east towards Michigan Avenue. But Michigan Avenue, Wabash State, is a seven-day work, a legitimate seven-day uh, retail streak now, and and significantly, and night, you know, not just day. But you know, the streets don't roll up at 6:30 when everyone gets the, the last express train, you know, to the to the suburbs. Uh, people are staying down and eating and going to the theaters or staying there for a hotel or coming in for business. It's a dramatic change. It's a really good change for downtown. Certainly. And do you, th do you see any of that expansion off of Michigan Avenue? I, I know you represent both tenants and landlords. So have you noticed any tenants that are, is that spilling out outside of Michigan Avenue? Is it going can't go too far east, but is right. it going west at all? Yeah, uh, it is going west. I mean, now as you go, Michigan, Wabash, you know, certainly with the students on Wabash State, um, you know, Dearborn isn't, isn't exactly a retail street per se, but as you, it's fanning out. It's it's it takes time. It's not something that happens instantly, but it, over a period of years, uh, I believe it'll go all the way to Wacker, and then of course, you know, Fulton Market has picked up way to the west. So eventually, things will come together. You know, over the next let's call it 10 years, certainly the, the the West Loop Fulton Market area will merge with the Loop, and I think it'll be a very very vital area. The biggest problem will be automobile traffic. That'll be the problem. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely envision there being some traffic. Do you think that with the West Loop, I see that there's a couple different hotels going in there right now, and. I think of the West Loop as having a boom in terms of restaurants and bars. Do you think that with the new hotels and probably some more residential developments, since there's just a higher concentration of people, do you think that there'll be more retail out, you'll see out in the West Loop area over the next five, 10 years? That's the goal of, of almost every investor who's purchased property there in the last five years. You know, it, it is a very successful restaurant area. Um, extremely successful, principally independent restaurants, you know, star chefs. Um, but in order to be a legitimate, real retail area, it has to be more than restaurants. You just, it's too big of an area to just fill with restaurants. So, uh, you know, the Urban Outfitter brands are, you know, Free People, um, Anthropology, those brands are, have signed leases that are under construction. And uh, that is really the start. There are some smaller stores, Billy Reed, which is a very high-end boutique menswear. Uh, Kit and Ace is there. There are some stores that are there operating by themselves, but apparel needs other apparel around it in order to be successful. Sure. Very few will go by themselves. Urban, the urban brands at least, urban outfitters brands I should say, um, are one of the few pioneers. Most retailers will not pioneer anywhere. They need to have other people in their category doing well before they will take a risk. And you know, one thing that we should talk about today is is what's going on in apparel retail. Where there's there's really an earthquake going on, that is, some ways talked about and some ways not really known outside of retail and probably retail real estate brokers. Um, yeah, so. you, you definitely have my attention on that. Yeah. Tell tell me what you use the word earthquake. Uh, what's going on? Well, what's happened, and it really came out, probably came out this Christmas, and I would say it became really obvious, is that retail apparel retailers, full price apparel retailers. Um, are really struggling, and that is because people are, are fleeing to lower price goods. You know, TJ Maxx is doing great, Ross Store is doing great, hmm. um, but the full price stores are suffering at, at the expense of those, you know, because of those people, but also, of course, because of the internet. And you know, Amazon is now getting more into apparel, Zappos, those stores are, are a big factor. 
Um, so what we're finding, we have a fairly large you know, set of apparel clients uh, in our company. We do apparel work, we do restaurant work, you know, we do you know, anything retail. But our, our, our apparel clients are, in fact, kind of on hold trying to figure out what to do, how to retool to, you know, to succeed in this new you know, retail age. Um, I heard uh, someone mention, my colleague mentioned, the, the president or founder of Warby Parker, you know, which is an extraordinarily successful optical retailer, started yeah. on the internet and now has stores. A very interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but his comment was, brick and mortar retail is not dead. Boring retailers are dead. And <laughs> so, you know, you saw the limited close their entire chain a few weeks ago. And right. Because I think they were just no longer relevant. And there are many chains just like that that I think will probably uh, not survive this particular cycle. Um, and I think what the, the better retailers are doing now is trying to figure out how to retool and what they want to be as retailers going forward because they're not going to all close up their stores and they're not going to go 100% online. You know, people need stores, people shop in stores, um, but they, are, they do need to become more relevant and more interesting in order to survive. Yeah, anybody who's driven by on 88 and driven by the dis, uh, the outlet, this, the, the outlets, yeah, I was thinking of the yeah. outlets, either on 88 or up near O'Hare Airport knows that those places are booming. There's lines of cars that can't even get off the highway to get into the outlet centers. So you definitely have that demand. Do you think that landlords are looking for new types or... I don't want to call them all discount retailers, but do you think landlords are really evaluating the tenants' uh, uses to determine whether they think that they'll be around for a long time? Do you think that they're uh, more interested in the Warby Parkers of the world, the people that are trying to, trying to change the game when they're trying to select what tenant to put into their buildings? Um, most the, the answer is most often yes. It depends on the property. It depends on the landlord. So if you're if you're leasing a property like Block Thirty Seven, which is a collection of you know, retailers, um, you know, on the street, certainly on State Street, you want to make sure that every retailer is complementary to the others, and, and no one throws the rest of the group into a into a competitive uh, disadvantage. So you need to be extremely careful um, if you're leasing on Southport Avenue, you know, another area in the city that is you know, probably the hottest retail street in the city of Chicago. Those landlords are very attuned to merchandising their street, even though there are you know, 50 owners of buildings, of separate buildings there, they are all pretty attuned to saying, we really need some men's apparel here and we're gonna hold out for men's apparel instead of having you know, another you know, Me Too uh, uh, women's concept, for example. You know, if you're a sophisticated retail landlord, you know, it used to be just the, the regional malls were careful about how they merchandised their store, their malls, and put the apparel, women's shoes together, and put the optical together, and you know, put the Fannie Mae and the jeweler at center court, and very merchandised their malls. But today, right. um, even retailers on the street and, and owners on the street are very carefully merchandised for the most part. It it does seem that the areas that really think about these things, like North Michigan Avenue, uh, you're on. The association, the North Michigan Avenue Association, I believe it's called the the Urban Sign Area, and also the Southport Corridor Area. I noticed, like you're saying, these areas that really think about what they're doing, and they have associations where they all kind of get together and talk about what's going on. I mean, can you tell us about the North Michigan Avenue Association? Because I think it's interesting. Everyone probably who walks down there just thinks all these stores are just here, but it's not an accident. These people have all tried to come together to figure out the best way to make it look 
good. And they have, there's actually rules for signage and how the signage operates on North Michigan Avenue. I think there's even, there's even a city of Chicago code uh, that's related to just the downtown area and how signage can work. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I don't think most people notice the signage on Michigan Avenue because it's not something you think about. You're either shopping or you're walking somewhere. Just us real estate nerds. E exactly. Um, but I, I am on the, the signage and redevelopment committee and we meet once a month and people come before the committee and present their signs and there are standards that has to be and uh, the alderman has to sign off on it, the city hall has to sign off on it, and the Greater North, the Magnificent Mile Association as it's now known, also signs off on it. So it's, it's a pretty rigorous review. It's not an unfriendly group, uh, but it's a rigorous review to maintain um, some standards of, of, of dignity of the street because it's one of the best shopping streets in the world. Um, if the signage went uh, unrestrained, you know, retailers would have signs as big as they possibly could. And, you know, I think the thing that jolted everybody, particularly the aldermen, uh, was the Trump sign. You know, that, that was, right. he was able to do that as of right somehow, and it, right after that was done, you know, the requirement, the, the rules and the regulations were changed to prevent it, but, you know, particularly on the river, that's a whole other set of signage restrictions on facing the, for buildings fronting the Chicago River. So signage is really important toward creating a, an environment for an area, because if it doesn't feel right, if it feels uncomfortable, or if it feels, you know, like streets in, in, in Tokyo, it, it's, it's going to be perceived as, you know, undignified or, or, or in, in, in effect, bad for retail as opposed to good for retail. I wanted to ask you about the mayor's task force. Hmm. So it, it says, and I want to get this right, the City of Chicago Department of Planning to the Retail Advisory Committee for the Mayor's Task Force on State Street. Can you tell us about what you did? Which mayor was that? That was uh, Mayor Daly at the time. Okay. And uh, that was when State Street was had gone down, uh, and State Street was was not nice. There was plenty of vacancy. Uh, rents were were low, and the city took a very strong hand in State Street in in creating some standards, creating some signage standards, creating some some goals. They hired an individual at the time to you know really run, be responsible to the mayor for State Street. And then they brought in 14 industry professionals, both development people, brokers, architects, and created a set of standards for Michigan Avenue and it was, or for State Street, excuse me. And um, it was actually followed. And you know, I can really say from that moment, from that year, let's say going forward, it did change. And, and suddenly better retailers became interested in State Street. And um, it, from that moment, it has gone you know, significantly higher. State Street's, uh, it's not North Michigan Avenue. It never really will be. It's more of an every man uh, and every woman sort of uh, retail mix. But State Street is very strong. The pedestrian traffic is good. It's now seven days a week instead of five and a half, you know, maybe six when it, it, at one time Marshall Fields, now Macy's was only open, I think they called it Subway Sundays. They were open one Sunday a month. Um, but that was, you know, it just it doesn't exist anymore. So that's, you know, State Street is a significant force and a regional draw in Chicago now. Right. What, what year was that? It was probably um, mid-90s. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've noticed, because I was wondering if this just happened fairly recently, because after the downturn, in about 2010, there was quite a bit of vacancy just right on State Street, which was alarming. As you walk by, you think state there's Michigan Avenue, there's State Street, and there was quite a bit, and 
seemed like block 37 took a little bit of time to get going and then uh but all of a sudden you, you woke up one day you went to work one day and state street slammed there's not it doesn't seem like there's any vacancy uh as you walk down it block 37 is booming it's a vibrant area and you know part of it was probably target by itself just coming and taking over the old carson Peary spot carson Peary scott block but yeah you're certainly certainly right it's just anecdotally i've noticed as i walk down the street it's it's a much different area than it was just a couple of years ago yeah target was significant um in because that carson when it was carson when carson Peary scott was open it was a legitimate you know obviously it was a major department store it was a historic building but when it closed, the south part of State Street changed, and it was not so desirable anymore. Uh, and you know, no retailer likes to locate near a vacant department store. There's no synergy there. No, you don't get any shoppers from a vacant department store. In fact, you, right. you lose them. Um, so, Target opening was a big deal, and everything. You know, Walgreens opening, and, and you know, no one was at first proud to see Walgreens go at State and Randolph, a very important intersection. But they put a cool store there you know it is a cool it's audience. cool and you know it's hard yeah. to believe it's cool um but it is and it draws people and it's it's a 24-hour store it's not terrible usually you want apparel at all these the more apparel you can put into an area the better all the apparel people do um so when you have a drug store it's not it sort of interrupts the retail flow uh, but walgreens pulled it off i have to give them credit they pulled it off and I, I, it's a very high volume store for them and then you know of course they did a second store two blocks away Estate in Madison, which, right, you know, not as big a fan of that. Having two gigantic drugstores that close to each other is not, you know, it could have been such a better retail use for the street. But in the end, you know, it's not my. I, I certainly don't control that. Right. Landlords control that. Can you tell us at all about your work with Merchandise Mart? Yes, uh, we've been the retail leasing agent for the Merchandise Mart for. I think 14 years and when we got involved you know prior to that uh, the old regional mall firm JMB uh, had made the, the interior of the, re of the first two floors of the, of the merchandise market into a regional mall a mini regional mall mm -hmm. anchored by a Carson Perry Scott I don't think most people realize that um, but it, looked, yeah. it looked great when it opened it was really beautiful but it didn't work um, people didn't shop there they didn't go there to, sh to shop at stores they could shop at, at their home you know near their house or um, or at any shopping center and it just it didn't work and so when we got involved we started to lease more to service tenants and food which is really what people want you know the merchandise mart has a tremendous uh, daily population about 27,000 people come and go every single day there um, and it's really a city within a city it has its own zip code its own L station so uh, it but it's interior retail interior retail is a little harder to lease for for brokers and investors so um, we slowly were able to get, you know, Potbelly, Kinko's, uh, uh, Argo Tea, um, uh, Pret-a-Manger, you know, better names, Protein Bar, start, all started to go in there. And then yeah. what happened is, you know, the tech boom happened and Google, you know, did an enormous lease, which became Motorola Mobility. And then all these tech firms started to follow. Uh, 1871 followed and it became... Instead of being a fairly thinly populated building because it was all showrooms with one or two employees in it, it became a very dense building filled with you know 25 to 35 year old uh, you know, engineers, software engineers, uh, salespeople, and um, it the market got hot. It got hot, very hot, as an office building, and then 
in turn, luckily for us, it got hot as a retail building. So it's a very it's a very attractive location, particularly for food. You know, we'd love to find some other non-food retailers when our vacancies come up, but everybody wants to serve. It's, food is where it's at today, um, particularly with you know the, with the disruptions in the apparel industry I just mentioned. So. Um, well, it's definitely an extremely interesting building. I mean, the sheer mass of it. I, I was just on an architectural boat tour this past year. They said some statistic that I'm going to forget. And it was something to the effect of the, the square footage of the building is one of the largest buildings in the United States, Just, which is interesting because it's not all that tall. Right. But it's just a massive building. And it's, it's very interesting you put all of these... Um, newer, more dynamic food options in there that services at the same time uh, these younger professionals that are going there. And it's such a perfect location with a merchandise market stop right there. So you have such great public um, transportation options for these young professionals. It all, it makes sense, all the, the, the direction that it's being taken uh, with the food options, with the office space and the uses that are going in there. And with, you know, the the notion that a lot of the young professionals are going to be commuting to work using the brown, the purple lines, it's just, it just it all makes quite a bit of sense together. Well, I think you know one thing that that was has been done in the last two years at the Mart is you know Cornado, uh, the owner of uh, of the Mart, has spent a tremendous amount of money on the common areas, and in particular on the second floor. I don't know if you've been to the what is now the food hall. Food food courts are now called food halls. Um, which <laughs> That's is the, true. the new name for them, and it, it, you know, it's we studied other food successful food halls, and particularly in New York City, and um, completely changed it. It was really an '80s food court up until 12 months ago, um, with many of the '80s food court names you would see, and many of them are gone now. With it replaced, and we're in replacing, you know, by some of the cooler names, more interesting names, and, and you know, our charge from the merchandise mark people is to find the cool, you know, quote-unquote cool names, the unique operators, people who don't have 10 or, or 100 or 1,000 units, people who have one or two. And that's what we're very much looking for. And it's, it's interesting. You know, it's, it's not, we, we, we can't lease to any tenants who are not interesting. Um, that's, our, that's our charge. Well, I'm definitely not cool, but I think you're doing a great job <laughs> of bringing the cool restaurants. So Thank you. Uh, for whatever my opinion, means I, I definitely think it, it makes a lot of sense for what you're trying to do there um, what do you think is going to be the hot area for retail um, in the next 10 years in Chicago you already talked about the, the North Michigan Avenue area right along the river but as as you project forward 10 years as you look at your crystal ball what do you think is going to be an area that really takes off well it seems that you know the area that's been taking off for quite a long time, but has not taken off completely is Logan Square. I mean, and and even Pilsen sure. going south. I think these the areas that are, you know, somewhat legitimately um, historically ethnic, and now are gentrifying, probably in some cases to the detriment of the people who originally lived there. But that's just the way the way things work. But I think those are areas where um, the density is unbelievable. The retail has is very hodgepodge typically. Um, and so what happens is more mainstream retailers want to get a piece of that and those who are at least more adventurous um, you know will start to pepper in there and it's it's not always good you know it's uh, people who are who are looking for that truly authentic experience or who want to live in an area among their you know their own people don't always like when when the when the 
25 to 35 year old yuppies come in but uh, it, it it's happening it's not anything anybody can control but I think those two areas are interesting um, you know certainly Southport uh, for if you're paying attention to, to that area which got very hot pre-recession and then you know got very cold around the recession it's probably the strongest retail area and I think will continue to be strong just because of its proximity to, the, to that residential proximity to Wrigley well, yeah, so I was just thinking, I mean, all of the work that's being done around Wrigley, obviously the World Series, and then the, but the, that's bringing a lot of fans, bringing a lot of attention to that area, and then the, there's going to be that hotel, right, that's right, right next to Wrigley, and then they're doing a lot of other work right around that area. That'll probably all draw even more tourism, which is scary to think about, um, plus more population density as people live right around there. I would imagine that would be huge for that area in retail. I think it's going to be huge too. I think what's happening is all that, you know, that those, you know, bar, bar, bar after bar, which are um, which are very successful, particularly seasonally, and not so much off season. Um, right. Are going that that year is going to round out for them, and I think their their business swings are going to be certainly always high in the summertime, but I think it's going to be much uh, a much smoother sales cycle for them in the. Let's say the Cubs don't make the, the World Series, but say the fall, winter, um, those seasons will not be so dead there anymore. There's just, you know, the uh, Bucksbaum uh, group just put, you know, is putting up a tremendous development across the street from Wrigley Field. You know, the Cubs are putting up a tremendous, you know, sort of retail area next to Wrigley Field. The hotel you mentioned, there's a lot of stuff happening right there. And it is a shrine. Wrigley's a shrine, let's face it. So people just want to go there and see it. Um, and then if you can actually be entertained there when there's not a baseball game, then I think that's that would be a successful retail area. Do you remember a few years ago when they were talking about potentially moving the Cubs out to the suburbs? It seems ludicrous in retrospect that that was, that was a few short years ago. Yeah. They were talking about it. And now everyone is investing and uh, concentrating their resources in that area. I don't think that they're going to go anywhere anytime soon. I mean, you, I cannot imagine anybody even bringing that up today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, do you have any thoughts on the South Loop? Are you, does your firm do, do any work in the South Loop? Just because we haven't talked about that area of town yet. Um, we do work on Roosevelt Road, which you know the South Loop can be you know, Printers Row area, which is a you know, very nice residential area with good restaurants and, and cute retail. We don't do a ton there because it's not as pedestrian oriented or, or trafficked um, as we're used to. Um, but Roosevelt Road is a powerhouse of a retail street because, A, the density, but B, you know, the, the traffic is significant. So those are, it's a very, very powerful retail street, you know, that, that's, you know, really reasserted uh, itself over the last maybe 20 years. Um, so it's been a long time. It's not, it's not sudden, but it certainly has intensified. Sure. I mean, if you, if you haven't been down there in a while and then you drive down there for whatever reason and then all of a sudden... You're driving, there's Target, there's Whole Foods, Best Buy, there's that new cinema. Right. I mean, it's just exploded in right. that's, 15 years. That, I mean, that cinema is either one or two in the state of Illinois as far as movie theaters. So um, it's extremely successful. And Roosevelt Collection, which was you know, pre-recession, was going to be the downtown lifestyle center, the urban lifestyle center, um, filled with soft goods retailers, you know, regional mall tenants who, are, who occupy you know, open-air centers, and then the recession hit and it fell into trouble, but uh, uh, McCaffrey interest, you know, did a very good job of retenanting it, um, and it's now a, a you know, vibrant, real retail center with parking, 
with movie theater, with restaurants. So that's that's really the f that's probably the highest end shopping center in, in the Roosevelt corridor. Roosevelt is a little like State Street. It's not fancy. Um, it's just you know middle America retail, and it and it works. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. When you you do as we mentioned, both landlord representation, like you're doing at the Merchandise Mart, as well as the tenant representation. So you, let's say you had a retailer that was coming to the Chicago market. I think my first question is gonna be, where where would you tell them to go? But I, I'm sure your answer would be, well, we'd have to decide what they're looking for. So what kind of process do you have if you have a, a tenant coming to Chicago? How do you walk them through the areas or trying to figure out what would be a good fit for them? Well, you know, I hate to say what you probably expect me to say, which, which is it depends. But uh, I give that a lot as yeah. a lawyer, so don't so, worry about okay. it. Okay, <laughs> so it depends. But if it's a tenant, you know, often that tenant is already established in some other city on one of the coasts or some other city. So, you know, where are where is their most successful store? Where are they successful? Where are they not successful? Um, you know, our orientation as a firm is typically urban or pedestrian-oriented city uh, communities. So, you know, we're most comfortable in downtown Chicago and in Lincoln Park and on Southport, Armitage, and those streets which are heavily pedestrian trafficked, great density, but we're also very comfortable in the metro suburbs, what we call the metro suburbs, you know, Evanston, Winnetka, Highland Park, uh, and then Oak Park, Oak Brook to an extent. Um, those towns which, are, which ha have a tremendous transit population, I mean, mass transit population, right. and um, a good retail core. We're, we are probably the most active, we are the most active tenant brokers as a firm in downtown Naperville, which is an enormous and, and very, very successful downtown urban core. And if you don't, you know, want to drive an hour to Naperville, some people are shocked to hear that because they perceive Naperville as just a white bread community, um, and it, it, it has a very you know, vintage legitimate downtown full of retail so circle back to your question if someone is you know if a retailer is purely an urban player you know it's you know are they Michigan Avenue are they Rush Street are they Southport are they Lincoln Park there's kind of you, know, you, you check the boxes of those big retail streets if they're more suburban oriented um, but need you know need to be around other tenants other retailers we don't hesitate to recommend Naperville. You know, we're, we're, we're known more as an urban downtown firm, but downtown Naperville is, is the biggest, you know, pedestrian-oriented retail suburb in the city of Chicago, or in the metropolitan area, I should say. So um, we might just suggest, you know, Naperville, Evanston, um, as opposed to Michigan Avenue, The Loop. Um, so, it, it, of course, you know, the answer is it depends. Many, many apparel retailers are... In fact, all apparel retailers are extraordinarily picky, and it's it's hard, you know, finding a location that is, has absolutely the right pedestrian traffic, absolutely the right co-tenants. Um, we have to figure out how what how much volume all the people, are, all their competitors are doing on the street. Um, when their leases come up, there's a tremendous amount of information you have to come up with, which is often hard to come up with, before a retailer will actually get comfortable enough to, you know, sign a lease. Absolutely. I mean, your, your process makes a lot of sense for how you have to think through all those things. Just as, a, you know, switching gears just a little bit, I just wanted to take a moment of time to note that this is your 20-year anniversary of when you started Stone Real Estate. Uh, how have you liked 
Evan, or you're, you're being a part of a smaller team, but you guys do a tremendous amount of, of volume and business, and you guys, you're, the projects that you work on are as big as any of the big players out there. And uh, just you want to talk about your experience starting your own firm 20 years ago? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. We just honestly realized it was our we're entering our 20th year um, about two weeks ago, and so that was didn't quite realize it. You just sort of put your head down and go. <laughs> you started it 20 years ago. You've been working hard, and all of a sudden you wake up one day. Right. Seems like yesterday. Later. Um, you know, we we are. We're a, we're a boutique firm. In, in, in retail, you can still be a boutique. In office leasing, you really can't do that. You need to be global, certainly national. In retail, you can still be a boutique firm, and, and a lot of clients, or landlords and tenants, want that. They want the boutique because they want to be able to, they, they feel that we are um, local sharpshooters, we've been called. We really know the local area. We don't get tied up, you know, distracted all over the city or all over the country sometimes. So we are very focused on Chicago. We do some work outside of Chicago on a specialty basis, but we're very focused here. And we've always competed head on head with the very largest firms in the industry. There's some you know, great people who work for those firms, but we think we provide something a little bit different, um, a much more consultative approach. We're, we're uh, I think, more patient. I think we're more accessible. Um, we're not looking to toot our own horn. Um, you know, we're, we're, we like to think we're a comfortable firm. Well, I, I made you say it. I put you on the yeah. spot about it. You well, I had to do a little. I had to do a little. Right. right. Well, it, it is truly amazing the, the scope of the projects that you guys work on. Um, what is your favorite building in the city of Chicago? I like to ask people this question. That's you get question. all sorts of different answers. Yeah. I mean, I, my personally is either the Merchandise Mart, because I think it's just a cool building, and I like the Rookery an awful lot. And, I, and especially when you walk inside, it's it's really pretty breathtaking. That is a beautiful building. It's yeah. on. A, you see that when I got married five years ago, it's on a lot of the wet. It's a popular wedding venue because it is such a unique, beautiful building. Yeah. Well, David, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss today? Um, no, you've actually hit a lot of the high points. Well, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you walking us through all the different, what's going on in all the different areas of Chicago. It's rare to be able to sit down with somebody that can speak uh, so clearly and intelligently and so knowledgeably on all these different areas and what's going on. And I just I really appreciate your time today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again in two weeks. If you want to get in touch with us, just email us at solutioncenter.satcltd.com or visit our website, realestatebreakfast.com. Thanks so much and look forward to having breakfast with you soon. contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, or other professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your own financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solution Center or Shank Annis Tepper Campbell or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the individual capacities of the host and guests. All opinions on this podcast 
are rendered based on specific facts and under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to for use in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.